Thank you very much, uh, Joan. Let us bow our heads in prayer together. God, our loving creator and sustainer, you have been faithful to us through thick and thin, and your son Jesus is our hope and our salvation. Speak through your word this morning, we pray, that we may be who you have called us to be and continue to do good for the sake of your kingdom. Amen. Well, the football season is in full swing, and some of you will be rejoicing and others will be despairing. Yesterday, I was at my first match at, uh, of the season at Craven Cottage, not exactly a stress-free and uplifting afternoon. Fulham lost to Sheffield Wednesday, and I'm glad Peter Edwards is not here uh, this morning. It was a trial with suffering and persecution from Sheffield Wednesday fans as well. <laughs> now, there's a humorous cliche that's often quoted by uh, football commentaries. It was a game of two halves. Or as a football mutler might have said about Fulham, what we needed was a third half. <laughs> well, today's Bible passage is a reading of two halves. Uh, the first half gives Peter's practical instructions on Christian living, advice on how to live well for Jesus every day. And the second half, he addresses the fact that Christians will face persecution, giving advice to them when they suffer trials for their faith. And the two themes are connected. The followers of Jesus need to live well for their Lord, but this would be countercultural to the norms of the day. It would bring them into conflict with other people and also provoke persecution as well. And we think this was probably part of a baptism sermon that was weaved into Peter's letter. Now, Peter doesn't lord it over his flock as he writes, but he writes pastorally to Christians who were in the house churches that were scattered all over the five uh, Roman provinces. He gently encourages them and cautions them and sets them an example with grace, but also with hope. He kicks off by warning his readers, the end of all things is near, therefore. And then he goes on to say what that means. A few verses earlier, he'd actually pointed out that people are accountable before God. The Lord is ready to judge the living and the dead. And at the time that Peter wrote this, the second coming of Jesus was thought to be imminent. So Peter exhorts God's people to pay attention to the way that they live their lives. And that's very relevant to us today too, at this uncertain time. Because it was an uncertain time when Peter put his quill to parchment. And we are certainly living in uncertain times and challenging days. Just think of some of the things that are in the news at the moment. And one day, we will have to give an account for our lives, how we've lived them in these days. I believe we're called to be all that Jesus wants us to be, just as Christians were in Peter's day. 
So I'm going to make a few points as a kind of Bible study this morning from this passage. I'm going to whiz through them, but some practical things that Peter was urging the Christians to be. First of all, to be prepared. I was a woggle-wearing cub, and then a scout, and then a venture scout. And be prepared was the motto that was drummed into me. And many of you will know, uh, especially my colleagues, that I'm a belt, braces, and more braces kind of guy. Uh, When planning anything, I have to have a plan B and a plan C as well, just in case. And that goes back to the days in the Scouts, because the Scouts were called to be the best uh, citizens that they possibly could be by being prepared. And Peter wanted Christians to be prepared too. And it was clear in his previous chapter, in chapter 3 as well, he says they must be alert and sober as it is at the beginning of this reading. In other words, he's saying that Christians need to be clear-minded and self-controlled, making prayer a priority and not just an afterthought. If I go back to footballers for a moment, players have to be focused and disciplined if they're to be ready for the match. Players need to work selflessly together as a team. And it's the same for the people of God. We need to be focused in these days as the people of God. And Peter says in verse 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. In these days when terrorists are trying to create fear and division, when white supremacists are stirring up hatred, when some world leaders are acting without self-control like playground bullies, we must remember that love is the way of Jesus and perfect love casts out all fear. And so Peter calls Christians to sort out their own relationships. After all, God can't use us today as effective witnesses if we're working against each other. Your relationship with one another must be a priority. We must model love in the world, and love will help us face trials and persecution. What's more, we'll be ready Should Christ come again? So the first question this morning is, are you prepared for Christ's coming again? Are you praying that the Holy Spirit will turn you into a a healthy, skilled kingdom team player? Clothed with the team strip of love so that people will see Christ in you as your love becomes the goal in your life. Remember that it's only Jesus' victorious love that will triumph in the end, even over suffering, sin, and death. So we are to be prepared. The second thing is we're to be hospitable. You might have heard this a bit last week. Verse 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, sorry if you're not a football fan, but uh, permit me just one more mention of football, then I promise not to raise the subject again. Uh, Well, perhaps. (laughs) Peter said, love each other deeply. And the word deeply means stretched or strained. 
Just as footballers need to stretch their muscles and become supple to put themselves under strain to win, so Christian compassion and unselfish concern needs to be exercised to the limit by the people of God, not just occasionally. We should expect to be stretched if we are to be the supple, loving, compassionate people of God. And when we face trials and persecution, Christ's followers uh, are often called to move into different areas. And that was true in the time of Peter. When they were persecuted, they had to up and go. And in response to their need, their sisters and brothers from elsewhere would extend generous hospitality to them. It was a practical expression of love. It was a demonstration of consistent words and action. Marcin touched on this last week in his sermon, the need for radical hospitality and gracious generosity. For Peter, hospitality meant accommodating the poor, strangers, foreigners, those who were difficult to love. In fact, it meant helping whoever turned up. And it didn't mean being blinded to their faults, but accepting them, loving them, working with them. And what's more, the greeting to them should be warm, without complaint or grudge. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. God gives spiritual gifts, and we should use our talents as good stewards of his grace. And hospitality is such a gift. It's the forgotten jewel, if you like, in the crown of the church's witness. And that's why we go on banging about, can you support Nana Ockran's Welcome Box project? Because we should be, without grumbling, offering hospitality to those who desperately need it. And we need volunteers in these days to respond to the need. Remember, whatever you do for the least of Christ's family, you do to him. The next thing, be dependent. If you look at verse uh, 4, 11, you might want to be looking at the passage as we go through it because it's all there in the passage. If you speak, you should do it as one who speaks the very words of God. And if you serve, you should do it with the strength that God supplies. Now, I'm something of a Tigger character myself, but do you remember Rabbit in A.A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh? Let me just quote a little bit for you. It was going to be one of Rabbit's busy days. As soon as he woke up, he felt important, as if everything depended on him. It was just the day for organizing something, or writing a notice signed Rabbit, or seeing what everybody else thought about it, A sort of day when everybody said, yes, rabbit, and no rabbit, and waited until he had told them. Do you sometimes feel that everything depends on you, whether it be in your home or in the church or elsewhere? Whatever your gifts and personality, it's important to speak and act as though everything depends not on you, but on God. And that's quite countercultural. 
when self-reliance and self-fulfillment is the order of the day in these days. It doesn't mean stepping back from your responsibilities, but allowing Christ to work in and through every situation. Peter mentions two distinct roles in ministry here, speaking God's word as a prophet or teacher, and then serving. And both are needed, but they are God's gracious work in and through us. Remember, it's God's mission. It's not all about you. It doesn't depend totally on you. It depends on him and his work through you. So we need to be dependent. Peter also encourages us to be faithful. Look at verse 13. Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. That's a tough one, isn't it? So that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. The great fire of Rome Uh, broke out at night on July the 18th, AD 64. It could have started by accident, but spread rapidly. And there were rumors of Emperor Nero's involvement, but he blamed the Christians for what happened. Many were captured and unfairly forced to confess that they were to blame. Others resisted, but were thrown to the lions or burned alive at night as human torches to light Nero's gardens. Now, we're not sure if the persecution that Peter was talking about was referring to organized persecution like Nero's, uh, or whether the persecution was just as a result of their being who they were called to be. But there is a chance that this verse that appears here referred to that kind of persecution. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to test you. Whatever the case, Peter anticipated that they would endure future hardships. They'd be like gold refined in the fire. The Jews believed that God's people would suffer before the end times, but the wicked would be judged afterwards. So was it strange for Christians to suffer? Well, I don't think it was. Persecution was an unavoidable thing in their mission if they were doing it right, just as it was in Christ's mission. So if they were being persecuted, Peter was saying, you're doing something right. You shouldn't rejoice in a masochistic sense, but because you're being a true follower of Christ. I wonder whether we moan when we get a bit of persecution in our life. Peter was saying, by participating in a fellowship of Christ's sufferings, one day... Christians would share his glory. Faithful believers shouldn't look for trouble, but they should be prepared for opposition. Yesterday was uh, World Humanitarian Day, and uh, on the radio I was encouraging people to remember this in our prayers. 
And I was very moved and inspired on Thursday to go to a wreath-laying ceremony. In fact, Leila Garty was there uh, as well over at Westminster Abbey. And it was to remember those who tragically lost their lives while serving others. Um, people of faith, different faith, and no faith. Very, very moving, especially when some of these charity workers were targeted whilst they were doing their work uh, by uh, other people and were killed. It was clear from all those who were attending that those who died knew what they were doing. They took risks, but they were driven to do the right thing. And they were all driven by love. Just like that British paramedic, did you hear on the news this morning, in Finland, who was repeatedly stabbed when he was trying to help somebody else. And his words were, I'm not a hero, I'd do it again, because the world's such a dark place. If we don't help each other, who's going to? Are we faithful when adversity comes our way? Or are we too comfortable? And do we moan because our lives are disrupted in some way? Rather than when awful things happen in the world, are we a people who respond with love despite the pain and the cost? C.S. Lewis once said, the real problem is not why some pious, humble, believing people suffer, but why some do not. The next thing to be, be holy and serene. In verse 14, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. There seems to be an increasing antipathy towards Christians in the UK Uh, if we're to believe the stories that we read in the news, and some of you may have experienced it yourself. We hear of examples of nurses suspended for offering to pray with their patients. A churchgoer struck off from being an approved foster carer after a Muslim teenager in her care converted to Christianity. But persecution is far worse if we think we've got it bad here in other parts of the world. Take the Middle East, for example. Although North Korea is actually the most dangerous place to be a Christian in the world, closely followed by Saudi Arabia and Iran. Nevertheless, whenever I've seen people from those countries who are Christians bear witness to their faith when they're persecuted, It just seems as though love shines from them. And that's not surprising if you think about Stephen being stoned. We read that he saw Jesus in heaven and experienced God's glory. He possessed a holy serenity as God's spirit rested on him. Yes, persecuted uh, Christians shouldn't be looking for trouble, but neither should they retaliate inappropriately. But stand by love. Verse 15 says, The persecuted shouldn't murder when friends are uh, martyred. They shouldn't steal because they've had their possessions stolen. 
and they shouldn't respond in a lawless manner. Rather, they should consider insults a privilege, not a penalty. So remember, if you're being persecuted or insulted for your faith, don't take it personally. Don't blame God. The evil isn't directed at you, but at Christ in you. Respond by opening your heart even wider to the spirit of glory. And then be blessed and radiate Christ-like serenity. Don't retaliate in unholy ways, but just let Christ shine. The next one, Peter encourages us to be unashamed. I I wouldn't have told you at the beginning there were so many points, but we're nearly there. Verse 16, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. I wonder whether Peter recalled his own denial of Jesus when he was writing these words. I'm sure Jesus has every reason, or God has every reason to be ashamed of us rather like Peter because of our sinfulness and our weakness at times, our apathy quite often. Yet we read in Hebrews that God isn't ashamed of us. Rather, he scorned shame on the cross, making forgiveness possible. So we certainly shouldn't be ashamed of him, because he's not ashamed of us. Despite suffering for his name, we should be confident. The term Methodist was actually a derogatory name uh, that was given to uh, John Wesley's followers at Oxford University because they met methodically for Bible study. And they were teased and insulted in other ways. They were called the Bible Moths, the Holy Club, but it was the term Methodist that stuck. And the word Christian was actually, and it occurs three times in the Bible, started as a derogatory insult Uh, hurled by witty unbelievers in Antioch, meaning belonging to the party of Christ. And it was that name that stuck, despite followers being called saints, actually, over 60 times in the Bible, which you would have thought was the one that should have carried. Christians can easily be defensive when we're called names. Just think of those times at work when you have been abused in that way. But we shouldn't actually be surprised when this happens. It's nothing new. And we don't need to apologize for being Christian either. We need to rediscover a new confidence in Christ. Jesus said, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with all the holy angels. And that's why I want us to end this service later by singing Isaac Watts' hymn, I'm not ashamed to own my Lord or to defend his cause. Maintain the honor of his word, the glory of his cross. The final thing, Peter encourages us to be focused. 
So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Peter started off, the end of all things are near. He wanted Christians to be focused, to pay attention to their living. He gently warns them to get their relationships right, to act as team players, that they should live out their faith in word and deed, and be hospitable. Then authentic, faithful Christians should expect suffering and persecution, but not retaliate lawlessly, confidently revealing the spirit of glory without being ashamed. And then here at the end, he reminds them that judgment starts with us, the household of God, and then goes out to others. It's a sobering thought. And sometimes when we are thankful for the grace of God, we need to remember our responsibility to live faithfully. In these uncertain days, when we don't know what's around the corner, we are called to be God's holy people. None of us knows what the future holds. But we need to see everything in eternity's perspective, allowing God to work through us, being totally dependent on him, and let him refine us, even through fire. But it will not condemn us if we are faithful, for we are to continue to do good. It'll be tough. It is a spiritual battle, but it's gloriously worth it in the end. The question I think Peter puts to us, to be or not to be, will you be the faithful people of God, come what may? That is the question. Amen.